welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. You saw what I did in Egypt, and you know how I brought you here to me. Now, if you will faithfully obey me, you will be my very own people. The whole world is mine. Exodus, chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, Contemporary English Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're excited to be with you, and we pray that you are having a year filled with joy and blessings, especially the joy of having a closer fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Today on Anchored by Truth, we're going to start a new series. As just about everyone knows, the Christian faith in America has been subjected to more challenges in the last decade than probably in the first two centuries of the country's existence. But, frankly, the challenges being brought against the Christian faith are nothing new. They started the moment the first believers began testifying about the risen Christ almost 2,000 years ago. But as Jesus promised, the Christian faith has survived all the challenges brought against it, and it will survive those of today. Why? Because the Christian faith is true. So, To continue our exploration of the reason and evidence that demonstrate that Christianity is true, today in the studio we have R.D. Fierro, who is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., what is this new series that you have decided to launch? Well, I'd also like to say hi to everyone today and to welcome them to this new series on Anchored by Truth. And we're going to be talking about a part of the Bible that is pretty familiar to most people because we're going to be talking about the Ten Commandments. But I want to look at the commandments from a slightly different perspective. I think that most people view the Ten Commandments as exactly that, commands that are given to us by God. But I wonder how many of us stop and contemplate the fact that God did not give us the commandments for His benefit. God wasn't just sitting up in his grand throne room somewhere issuing commands to people just because he felt like exercising his authority. God gave us the Ten Commandments for our benefit. God gave us the Ten Commandments not just because he wanted to put limits or restrictions on his people, but God gave us the Ten Commandments because he wanted his people to know how to live godly, productive, and joyful lives. And if we follow the Ten Commandments, we're going to find out that they will enable us to do exactly that, to live godly, productive, and joyful lives. I think that is a very different perspective from the one that most people bring to the commandments. Eight of the Ten Commandments are generally phrased as negatives. Do not, or as in the King James Bible, thou shalt not. In other words, eight of the ten are prohibitions. They tell us what we're not allowed to do. Only the fourth and the fifth commandments are usually phrased as positive commands. In the King James Version, the fourth commandment tells us to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. And the fifth commandment says to honor thy father and thy mother. 
but all the others are some form of thou shalt not, such as the sixth commandment, which is thou shalt not kill. So all those thou shalt nots sure sounds like God is just putting limits on people. But there are two important things that we should note right away. First, scholars and commentators of the Bible have long noted that all of the commandments are both prescriptive and proscriptive, regardless of how they happen to be phrased in a particular Bible translation. Well, said slightly differently, all of the commandments tell us to do certain things, even if the commandment is normally phrased as a do not. I think we're going to need an example of what you're thinking about. Well, let's take a look at the sixth commandment, and you quoted that commandment from the King James Version. In the King James Version, it says, Thou shalt not kill. Now, in most modern translations, like the New International Version or the English Standard Version, that commandment is more accurately stated, You shall not murder. The prohibition from the sixth commandment is that we are not to never take a life, but rather we are never to take an innocent human life. We are never to take a life where there is no just cause for doing so. I mean, Christian commentators and theologians have noted for a long time that God even commanded capital punishment for certain crimes in the Old Testament. So the King James Version's use of the word kill instead of murder is somewhat misleading in our day and age. So the sixth commandment for our day and age is more properly translated as thou shalt not murder or you shall not murder. And Christian commentators and theologians have also often talked about a just war theory, that sometimes it is necessary for a nation to take up arms and use deadly force to defend itself or an innocent neighboring nation. But the point of the Sixth Commandment is that no one, governments included, are permitted to take the lives of human beings who have done nothing wrong, and that includes babies in the womb. Not even a government has the legitimate power to take away the life of a person who has not committed an act that merits the loss of their individual life. And certainly, there is no way an unborn baby could ever do anything to warrant having its life sacrificed. But at any rate, regardless of how that commandment is phrased in particular language, one of the things that we need to note about the sixth commandment, which again is usually phrased, you shall not or must not murder, But that prohibition carries with it a clear prescription that we must also not murder someone, take an innocent human life, but we also must do whatever is in our power to protect human life. So the person who fails to throw a life preserver to someone who is drowning when they have the capacity to do so, they're violating the sixth commandment even though they may not have been the one who pushed the drowning person into the water. The sixth commandment, like all the commandments, must be viewed as having both negative and affirmative aspects. In effect, the sixth commandment is what underscores most, if not all, so-called social justice. We must endeavor to feed the hungry and provide care for those unable to care for themselves, because to not do so would imperil their lives. Exactly. Protecting innocent human life is a natural and necessary extension of the truth in the Sixth Commandment. Yet, how often do we hear the modern social justice warriors acknowledge that? But even this simple example starts to show the real depth, breadth, and width of what the Ten Commandments are really all about. 
And when we start to approach the Ten Commandments from that perspective, I begin to see what you're talking about. We often view the Ten Commandments as if God just wanted to put a limit on our ability to somehow be free or happy. But what God was really doing in the Ten Commandments was setting up the basis for people to have peaceful, productive, and purposeful lives and to be able to build supportive families and communities. And that's just one of the big things that we want to get into during this series. God gave us the Ten Commandments for our benefit, not for His. God is infinite. God is without limits except those of His own righteous and perfectly holy character. Because God is perfectly righteous, He cannot do anything that's evil, and He can't violate His own laws. God's laws reflect His character. God is all-knowing. He's all-powerful. And He's perfect in all of His attributes. So God is quite literally beyond need. God doesn't need anything. God can't lack anything. Nor can anyone or any creature give God anything that God does not already have. After all, if you could speak the entire universe into existence with just a word, what is it that anyone or anything could give you? Exactly. So God did not need to issue the Ten Commandments to somehow make His existence better. He gave us the Ten Commandments to make our world and our lives better. And that is the reason that while other parts of the ancient Hebrew laws are no longer necessary or applicable to our lives today, the Ten Commandments still are. I think this is an area where there is a lot of confusion among Christians. Many people may not know that the laws that God gave to Moses on the mountain go beyond the Ten Commandments. They may not know that the Levitical Code addressed a wide variety of subjects that applied to the lives of the ancient Hebrews with a great deal of specificity. I think many people may be generally aware that the Old Testament contains prescriptions and proscriptions beyond those in the commandments, but I don't think many people know much about them. And, frankly, even when we read about them in our Bibles, they just seem so odd or strange to modern readers, we just have a tendency to gloss over them. What is the modern reader to make of the extensive instructions for building the tabernacle in the latter chapters of the book of Exodus, or the instructions to priests about checking mold in houses in Leviticus? Agreed. There are many parts of the Old Testament that are frankly strange to us the first time we read them. Now, all of those parts, even the ones that seem strange to us initially, they are all important for our understanding of the Bible. And many of those parts that seem strange are actually providing solid evidence that we know that the Bible is historically accurate and it's consistent with what we know about human history. Now, broadly speaking, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, they are often called the law when referring to the composition of the Old Testament. The Jews divided what we call the Old Testament today into three sections. They called them the law, the prophets, and the writings. The first five books of the Old Testament were called the Law, but of course, the fact that that's the label hung on them does not mean that they contain only prescriptive or proscriptive rules and regulations. The first five books of the Bible also contain other topical areas, such as history or even poetry. And apart from the first five books of the Old Testament, there is a different order between the books of the Hebrew Bible and that of most current Bibles. The subdivision called the Prophets consisted of eight books in the following order, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Jeremiah, 
Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the Twelve, which we call the Minor Prophets. The writings consisted of eleven books in this order. Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Lamentations, Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. The book of Ruth moved around. It was originally placed before the Psalms, but in the Middle Ages it was relocated next to the smaller books such as the Song of Solomon and Esther. So the term law that is sometimes used to refer to the first five books of our Bible, that's a term that has to do with the organizational structure of how the Jews viewed the Old Testament. But you will also hear that same word, that same term law, applied to the fairly large body of rules and regulations that governed the daily lives and religious practices of the ancient Hebrews. It governed religious practices in addition to prescribing civil codes of conduct. Because today, when we think of the term law, we almost always are thinking about some form of a civil code of conduct. Now, broadly speaking, the Old Testament law consisted of three different kinds of regulations. There were civil laws that governed their society in a manner very similar to how our civil law applies today. There were also ceremonial laws that governed religious practices. And there were also some enduring or transcendent moral and ethical principles like the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are enduring, transcendent moral principles. In other words, when God pronounced them, God intended for them to apply to all people at all times. But this differentiated them from the ceremonial laws that governed the ancient Hebrew religious practices, especially their system of sacrifice and festivals. The sacrificial system that was coded after the Israelites left Egypt had one specific purpose. It pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice that God himself would make when he sent his only begotten son to die on a cross to save his people from their sins. During the Old Testament period, the sacrificial system was necessary to point to an ultimate atoning sacrifice that was still forthcoming. But, As the writer of the book of Hebrews takes such pains to point out, Jesus Christ fulfilled perfectly the need for that atoning sacrifice. So, the old sacrificial system is no longer necessary. It has fulfilled its purpose. The writer of Hebrews put it this way, The law teaches that offerings and sacrifices must be made because of sin. But why did Christ mention these things and say that God did not want them? Well, it was to do away with offerings and sacrifices and to replace them. This is what he meant by saying to God, quote, I have come to do what you want, unquote. So we are made holy because Christ obeyed God and offered himself once for all. Right. Christ's life and death fulfilled the requirements of the Old Testament sacrificial system, so the ceremonial portions of the ancient Hebrew law are no longer necessary. Similarly, the civil portions of the Old Testament law were largely intended to provide a basis for the civil government of the Israelites after they left Egypt and after they settled into the Promised Land in Palestine. Speaking precisely, the civil portions of the ancient Hebrew law were intended either for a theocratic amphictony or, subsequently, a theocratic monarchy. A what? A theocratic amphictony. Now, broadly speaking, an amphictony is an association of neighboring states or tribes that act cooperatively for their common interest. 
Now, specifically, the term amphictony is most often used to refer to the association of neighboring city-states in ancient Greece where they had the association to defend a common religious interest. Now, let's remember that for the first 400 years after the Israelites left Egypt, they didn't have a central government. There was no king in Israel. The individual tribes, which were based on the patriarchal sons of Jacob, who was also called Israel, that the way the Israelites governed themselves after they left Egypt was they governed themselves based on individual tribes. The tribes really only came together when they were threatened by common enemies. In fact, Judges chapter 21 verse 25 tells us, quote, In those days, after the Exodus, Israel wasn't ruled by a king, and everyone did what they thought was right, unquote. So, today, we don't live in either a theocratic amphictony or a monarchy. We live in a constitutional republic. And as such, our civil laws are enacted by elected legislators or representatives, and they are enforced by either elected executives or appointed executives. In ancient Israel, for a while, the priests governed much of the law, and they had to come from a particular family. And even after the nation of Israel was formed, under a king, well then, heredity defined who the next king was going to be. But the primary point is that many of the laws that were part of this ancient large body of Hebrew law, they applied directly to the lives of the ancient Israelites in their day, but they are no longer directly applicable to us today. And we should note that many of those laws were specifically intended for an agrarian culture where the overwhelming bulk of economic activity centered on farming and animal husbandry. Our economy still has an important agricultural component, and we have some civil laws that govern it. But we need laws that govern modern forms of transportation, information acquisition and delivery, health care, etc., Our civil laws certainly mimic or echo some of what applied in ancient Israel, but the specifics have obviously changed to accommodate changes in technology. Yes, and we should note that one of the reasons we're taking such pains to explain the different components of the Old Testament law is because many critics of Christianity will try to take parts of the Bible out of context for the purpose of denigrating or denouncing Christianity. I mean, I've heard or seen critics or mockers say something like, Well, I'd like to be a Christian, but I'm not sure I can be because I often wear clothes made of polyester and cotton, and I like to plant my peppers and tomatoes in the same bed. You're alluding to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 19, which says, quote, Breed your livestock animals only with animals of the same kind, and don't plant two kinds of seed in the same field or wear clothes made of different kinds of material, unquote. That's from the contemporary English version. The mocker wants to demean all of Christianity by taking admonitions that were given to a very specific group for a very specific purpose, and then trying to turn those narrowly intended instructions into broader moral principles. Yes. The mocking and the criticism can be easily refuted when you understand the composition of the Mosaic Law and the Levitical Code. I'm just afraid that not many Christians in our day and age know how to draw the necessary distinctions. But the big point that we want to focus on for today is that the Ten Commandments, as part of that ancient Hebrew law, were never designed to be set aside, because there will never come a time when they have outlived their purpose. 
because their purpose was and is to establish the basis by which people should relate to God and by which people should relate to each other. In fact, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that the Ten Commandments and the truth set forth in them, they form the value structure for every stable civil society that has ever existed. That's a big statement, and especially today, there would be a lot of people who disagree with it. I mean, the first commandment is, quote, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, unquote. And that's from the English Standard Version. But there are obviously billions of people around the world who don't worship the God of the Bible, yet who live in communities that many classify as being stable. That's true. They would say their communities are stable, even though they don't worship the God of the Bible. And while we don't have time to go into all the nuances of the first commandment, let's at least take a moment to consider one or two. In the first commandment, God was certainly proclaiming that he was the one true God. But that's not all he was doing. He was also establishing a basis for his authority, and he was in turn establishing a basis for all earthly authority structures that would ever exist. Note that God gave the Hebrews an immediate reason that they should obey the commandments. And in giving that immediate reason to obey the commandments, he alluded to the ultimate reason for all authority. The immediate reason he gave them for obeying him was because he had just delivered them from being slaves to cruel masters. What you're saying is that before God ever gave the Ten Commandments, he said, in effect, to them, Look, I've just delivered you from slavery in Egypt. That proves my love and concern for you. Now I'm going to give you some commandments that will make your lives better and you can be sure of my desire for you to live good lives because I've shown you that's what I want to do, unquote. In other words, God proved his love for them before he presented his commandments to them. The commands God gave were and are no less a manifestation of God's love than his delivery of them from slavery. Yes, God delivered the Israelites from bondage in Egypt because he loved them. He gave them the Ten Commandments because he loved them. And one display of his love was his concern that they understand that life is best lived by acknowledging him as the source of all order and blessing. The first commandment points out that the God who delivered the Hebrews from the Egyptian Pharaoh was also the God who had created them. The first commandment should draw our attention to the fact that everything in creation originates with God. And frankly, that everything in creation, like us, we're going to have to ultimately give an account of our lives to God. The first commandment was a succinct way of saying, don't be content by worshiping any lesser beings or things. Confine your worship to the one who can actually help you and to the one who orders all things on earth as well as in heaven. The Apostle Paul made it abundantly clear that all authority on earth originates with God. In Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Paul said, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. And that's from the New International Version. Yes. So even people who live in communities or countries that do not worship the God of the Bible, they still have governmental authority structures. Countries without functioning civil governments descend into anarchy, and anarchy is never good for ordinary people. 
Now, some governments are tyrannical and others are benign, but some kind of authority structure is necessary for human beings to live in communities with reasonable peace, safety, and harmony. So when God gave that first commandment, he was establishing right up front that there needs to be an authority over all human affairs. And what God was saying was, I am that ultimate authority. And the fact that the commandments transcend time, cultures, and nations is powerful evidence that they were given by an omniscient God who knew what was best for the creatures he had created. Sounds like we're in for another thought-provoking expedition. This sounds like a great time to pray. Since we've just been talking about the fact that all earthly authorities are established by God, today let's listen to a prayer for our government officials, especially that they would be good stewards of the authority that God has placed in their hands. A prayer for government leaders. God of glory and ruler of men, thank you for the manifold blessings that you have bestowed upon our community and nation. We remember today that all good gifts come down only from the Father of Light, and that it is you and you alone who have provided for our needs and our hopes. Help us to never forget that you are sovereign and that we are completely dependent on your grace and mercy for that which sustains us and makes us fruitful. Lord, we pray that you would remember those who have been elected and appointed to serve as leaders of our communities, states, and nation. You have ordained that governments be established among men. It is your desire and command that governments provide for the defense of the weak and helpless and foster the common good. You desire all governments everywhere to pursue truth and justice in every action they take for only honest and just servants are consistent with your holy character. Praise be to you, Holy Father, that our faith need not rest on the actions of any human leader, no matter how powerful, for the greatest among men can never escape your providence and will. Thank you, blessed Lord, for your kindness and mercy. Glorify yourself in directing the ways of this nation and cause your name to be magnified on the earth. In Christ's holy name we pray and give thanks. Amen. Amen. Is the Bible important in your life? Supporting Anchored by Truth with a contribution is an easy way to put your faith into action. The opportunity to help is available at crystalseabooks.com. How wonderful would it be for Jesus to commend us because we made his word a priority in our lives and giving. We are grateful for your support and partnership. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage friends to tune in also or to listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where We're not perfect, but our boss is. And for those of you who need that website one more time, that's crystalcbooks.com. Crystal, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-C-S-E-A, and books, B-O-O-K-S, dot com. Thank you for your support. Are you hungry for truth? Most people are today. Between changing social standards, cultural chaos, and denominational deviance, 
Confusion is sweeping our community like a tsunami. Will we be swept away, or will we be anchored by truth? At Crystal Sea Books, our passion is the Bible. The Bible came from the mind of God. The words of God are powerful in truth and love. God will give us peace and strength as we honor His Word. At Crystal Sea Books, we believe the Bible can be a dynamic part of adventure stories, lyrical rhythms, and even humor, as well as inspire our prayers and meditations. That's why Crystal Sea Books is so pleased to offer Purposeful Prayers and the Anthology of Purposeful Prayers. Many people know that prayer is an essential component to a powerful Christian faith, but they feel uncertain when they begin a prayer commitment. Let R.D. Fierro's Purposeful Prayers come alongside you to help you prepare to go before the throne of grace and find the peace and power that comes from learning to pray purposefully. And getting a copy of Purposeful Prayers couldn't be easier. Just go to crystalcbooks.com and use the link. That's crystal, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-C-S-E-A, books, B-O-O-K-S, dot com. In Purposeful Prayers and the Anthology of Purposeful Prayers, the Bible's timeless wisdom is captured in a devotional study of prayer and in prayers specifically designed to build faith as you focus on interceding with your family, friends, and nation. Get your own copy of Purposeful Prayers today. At Crystal Sea Books, we're not perfect, but our boss is.